The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. But in the case of SGLT2 inhibitors and now GLP-1 receptor agonists, they actually provide cardiovascular protection. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This uh, episode of Annals on Call features two articles from the annals related to SGLT2 inhibitors. The first is an observation written as a letter titled Euglycemic Ketoacidosis Caused by Sodium Glucose Co-Transport 2 Inhibitors, a Case Report. This appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine, October 4, 2016. More recently, an article appeared titled Fournier's Gangrene, associated with sodium glucose co-transport 2 inhibitors or review of spontaneous post-marketing cases. This article appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine in May of 2019. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Katherine Tuttle, who is both a board-certified endocrinologist and nephrologist. She's the Executive Director for Research at Providence Healthcare. She's Professor of Medicine and Co-Principal Investigator of the Clinical and Translational Science Award at the University of Washington. She's on the Board of Directors for the Kidney Health Initiative and has chaired numerous uh, national programs, including the National Kidney Foundation. We think that you will enjoy and learn a great deal from this conversation Uh, that we have titled SGLT2 Inhibitors, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. And I'm very excited about this because the SGLT2 inhibitors seem to be increasing in use and a very important part of the management of type 2 diabetes. For those people in the audience who really haven't figured them out exactly right. Could you start out by just explaining what they are and what the idea is behind them? Sure, I would be happy to. So the SGLT2 inhibitor class was developed as uh, an approach to treating hyperglycemia by increasing glucosuria. And the way they do that is that they block uh, the SGLT2 transporter in the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidney. And that's the site where 90% of filtered glucose is reclaimed. So by blocking glucose uptake at that site, they enhance glucose loss through the urine and thereby lower uh, blood glucose. Is it good at lowering blood glucose? How much does this add to the drugs we were using previously? From the standpoint of glycemic control, they're moderately effective 
can typically expect about a 1% decline in A1C, which is clinically meaningful for many patients to get to goal. But I think where they're really emerging to have a special place in our armamentarium for type 2 diabetes is in the areas of cardiovascular and kidney protection above and beyond the glycemic effects. That seems very exciting because I know that some of the previous hypoglycemic drugs actually increased cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. I don't remember any of them having any major impact on renal function, but certainly diabetic renal disease is a very, very important healthcare issue in the United States with increasing type 2 diabetes. What do the studies tell us about that? So we see all these ads on TV, and let's go over some of the generic names, and if you want to throw in the trade names in case people are not familiar with the generics, what drugs are we talking about? Uh, Canagliflozin, Empagliflozin, and Dapagliflozin are the agents that are currently FDA-approved for marketing in the United States. You mentioned something really important, and that was that earlier generations of antihyperglycemic agents had signals of increased cardiovascular risk, particularly heart failure risk with the TZD class, so uh, rosiglitazone in particular. And in about 2006, reports began to come in about increased risk, as you mentioned, for cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, but particularly related to heart failure. And so as a result of that experience, the FDA then mandated that newer glucose-lowering agents, uh, after they were approved for glycemic control, that companies would be required to do a post-market approval cardiovascular safety study to maintain their position on the market. And to be honest with you, it's really been the gift that kept on giving because as a result of doing those cardiovascular outcome trials for safety, what we learned is not only were the subsequent newer classes safe, but in the case of SGLT2 inhibitors and now GLP-1 receptor agonists, they actually provide cardiovascular protection. And I, th- I think that the investigators were, were prescient in that when they designed the clinical trials, they did design them in a statistically rigorous manner. So if they met the requirement of non-inferiority or safety, that they could continue the statistical testing for superiority, which was a very prescient thing to do. And then I guess uh, wearing my hat as both an endocrinologist and a nephrologist, the main secondary outcomes they pre-specified were those related to kidney disease. So it was some measure of GFR decline. In some of the trials, it was either doubling of creatinine and others, it was a 40% eGFR decline uh, in stage Uh, kidney disease defined by either need for transplant or maintenance dialysis or death due to untreated kidney failure. And basically all of the cardiovascular outcome trials that were initially done for the FDA mandate not only showed safety, but for each of those agents now, we have reports of superiority. The populations differed slightly. So in the Impagliflozin trial, uh, called the Impareg trial, they were people who already had prevalent cardiovascular disease to so the highest risk population, where they showed a reduction in MACE, that's major adverse cardiovascular events, but it was driven by reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure. And then the, the next trial to report was the CANVAS program, which looked at canagliflozin, slightly lower risk population. So they had 
a number of patients with prevalent CVD, but they also had some people with type 2 diabetes who had multiple risk factors. But they showed the same thing, uh, not only safety, but a reduction in heart failure. They didn't uh, achieve the death endpoint, but it was a lower risk population, making it harder to achieve that endpoint. And then finally, the DECLARE trial of dapagliflozin reported out in December, January of this year with yet an even lower risk population to where it was about half and half prevalent CVD or patients with type 2 diabetes and CVD risk factors and basically reproduced the same results. All of them showed on the kidney outcomes reduction in the big kidney events too across the board, whatever measure of GFR decline, end-stage kidney disease, um, and death due to kidney diseases. That is just fascinating and explains why the cardiologists are so excited about this class of drugs and why the nephrologists are so excited. Let's talk about the kidneys uh, because you're also a nephrologist as well as an endocrinologist. And there were there was a lot of signals, if I remember right, with the original trials. But most recently, there was a study specifically just to see, and I think it's people who already have proteinuria that they're testing in the Credence trial. Yes, that's exactly right, Bob. Um, in the Credence trial, this was the first dedicated kidney outcomes trial. In this case, patients selected for diabetic kidney disease by having albuminuria, more than 300 milligram per gram creatinine, that's what we call macroalbuminuria or severely elevated albuminuria, or if you're old enough, overt diabetic nephropathy. <laughs> and they had an estimated GFR between 30 and 90. Uh, and in this population of patients where the primary outcome was doubling of creatinine, end-stage kidney disease, death due to kidney disease or cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. that's a mouthful, but that primary outcome was reduced by 30% on top of standard of care, which was treatment with either an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. And they really had excellent adherence to the drug and adherence to standard of care, such that 99.9% .9 of patients uh, were on either an ACE uh, or an ARB. This trial was stopped early for overwhelming efficacy. And I, I want to just sort of take a moment that there are very few clinical trials in any field of medicine that are stopped for efficacy. We see them commonly stopped for safety. In the field of nephrology, as to my knowledge, there's never been a prior trial stopped for efficacy. Certainly plenty stopped for safety. Um, the other thing is that uh, in this trial, uh, Credence, which used canagliflozin, because um, death was included in the primary outcome, the current application to the FDA for a new indication not only includes prevention of <clears throat> loss of kidney function and end-stage kidney disease, but death. And again, in the field of nephrology, if they should succeed with this application, it will be the first drug ever approved to prevent death in a kidney disease population. And again, if we go outside of nephrology, there are very few drugs that have been approved to prevent death in any therapeutic area. So this really is a transformative advance uh, in the field of medicine at large, especially since uh, in internal medicine, diabetes is one of the most common uh, conditions we treat and, and diabetic kidney disease still occurs in about 40% of our patients. So uh, following uh, a number of newspaper articles and following social media, 
I don't ever remember seeing the nephrology community more excited about anything in the last 20 years than these types of results. There's always a downside to any medication. And uh, we've picked two articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine that discuss two complications that you need to be aware of when you're using these drugs. And you may even need to warn patients about certain things that could happen. What are the red flags they need to know about? The first article, which is an older article, is about euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. And maybe you could go over that because you keep on seeing case reports of it and hearing stories about it. It's not that common, but it's that serious. Yes, and and I think it's really important to balance the excitement with a consideration of safety concerns. I think that like ACE inhibitors and ARBs, we need in the early days, we were very concerned about side effects. In the case of those drugs, it was hyperkalemia and AKI, but we learned how to manage patients on those. And I think the same principle applies here. So with the SGLT2 inhibitors, so-called euglycemic or mildly hyperglycemic DKA, genital mycotic infections, and rare cases of Fournier's gangrene are the most serious reported side effects. One thing in particular to canagliflozin that I want to mention, then I'll come back to those um, first three side effects, is in the original CANVAS trial, which was the cardiovascular outcomes trial that predated Credence, uh, in that study with canagliflozin in particular, there was an increased risk of lower extremity amputations. It was mostly toes, not entire feet, uh, and uh, bone fractures. So during the Credence study, especially because people with kidney disease are especially prone to things like amputations and fractures, those uh, they instituted a foot care program. And there was very careful prospective ascertainment and adjudication for those side effects. The great news was that in Credence and in a population with DKD, neither of those side effects was more frequent in the treated group. And and one thing that I, I think a clinical learning from that is that there was a foot care program. That is, everybody took their socks off when they came for a study visit. Astonishing. You you actually got the socks off? Yes. So, I mean, sometimes it's little things like that, right? So I would say if we're going to follow a credence type protocol, part of it does include taking people's socks off and looking at their feet. It was really as simple as that. Uh, Let me just say that that's a good idea in everybody with diabetes, whether they're on these drugs or not, uh, that uh, you you have to take the socks off because that's the feet really are important, and patients will tell you that the feet are real important. Well, and many people uh, who have diabetic complications, like diabetic kidney disease, have the full house of complications, including neuropathy. So they don't feel pain if they've developed an ulcer or they have an infection in, in many cases. And also, a lot of people can't see the bottom side of their feet, and they don't always have a partner to look. So that's why I think it's really important. In fact, in my clinical practice, Part of what I have uh, done during the rooming procedure is, frankly, whether or not they have diabetes, I have everybody take their shoes and socks off because I also want to check people's pulses and take a good look at at the feet because, um, 
again, in the population patients who side treat with and without diabetes, there's a lot of vascular disease. And in the diabetic population, of course, a high risk of ulceration. So I would encourage it's a, every everyone to do that. It's a very simple thing. And uh, it's m merely a matter of removing the shoes and a, a few moments to look at the feet and check the pulses can be invaluable. Uh, I, um, I, I love the focus on physical exam. It's so old yeah. school that I love it. <laughs> but it's so informative. Yeah. You know, actually, when I teach the students, one of my, uh, one of my mantras is when all else fails, examine the patient. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, so uh, now back to, to DKA and uh, infections. Well, let's uh, just say one more thing about the feet. This was particular with the Canigal-Flozen trial, but that did not show up with the other SGLT2 trials. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. And, and this is um, really just, I guess, hypothesis generating. But in credence, that is an even higher risk group for diabetic foot infections because of their diabetic kidney disease. And people with that complication have so much vascular disease, especially peripheral vascular disease. Is My personal opinion is that good foot care was probably instrumental in basically reducing the risk of that complication. So the take-home point for clinicians is, as we said, look at everybody's feet, but especially if you have someone in SGLT2 inhibitor and good foot care, even in people with DKD, was associated with no increased risk of amputations. Great. Okay. So back, back to the euglycemic or slightly elevated glucose ketoacidosis. Right. Um, Bob, as you said, it's very rare uh, in credence. Uh, I believe it was 1% to 2% in the canna group versus about half that in the non-canna group. So again, it's very rare, but when it occurs, it's a serious complication. It most commonly occurs in people who are treated with insulin. So it implies that people who are insulinopenic, even if they have type 2 diabetes, are at higher risk. I think people should be warned about it. Some have recommended that in insulin-treated patients, they do monitoring for ketones. It is outside of the FDA label, but some clinicians are using these drugs in type 1 diabetes, so it would be especially relevant in that group. In type 2 diabetes, I think the main issue is I think the most practical thing would be, if you will, sick day rules. So when people have an acute illness uh, are hospitalized or having a procedure associated with, quote, stressors, SGLT2 inhibitors should be stopped temporarily, not unlike what we do with ACE inhibitors or ARBs. I think anybody who is treated with insulin in whom the clinician has a higher concern about potential ketosis would recommend uh, ketone monitoring. There are two ways to do it. You can have a ketone meter, but I actually like the old-fashioned old tech way, which is urine ketone monitoring. Mm -hmm. and, and the truth is that when ketosis develops, uh, the first place the ketones will appear in the urine, because even people with kidney disease will clear ketones uh, through the kidney before they accumulate in the blood. So it's easier, it's low tech, and frankly, it would be more likely to detect early ketosis than, than blood ketone monitoring. 
my personal, and nobody really knows. So again, what you will hear from, quote, experts is their opinions. So I'll give you mine. I don't think that ketone monitoring is necessary in most people with type 2 diabetes. I think if they're insulin treated and there's any question that they could be a misdiagnosed type 1, although if, 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 if that's the case, um, obviously, then they probably should be on a different treatment paradigm. But uh, be that as it may, people who are on insulin during sick days, I think ketone monitoring is worth it. If they're not insulin treated, I think uh, simply sick day management with temporary drug interruption is probably enough. Uh, but we, we will be learning more about this as, as the use of these agents expands. And I do think it's going to be an important issue to study the safety. This is where some of the real world data can help us too. When we look at the as treated populations and we can look for signals regarding DKA and, 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 and perhaps be better at identifying who's at higher risk so we know uh, more precisely about who to monitor. One of the reasons I wanted to bring this up is to make sure that all of our listeners know when someone looks sick and they're on an SGLT2 to look for this. I've mm-hmm. heard cases presented where people came in with increased anion gaps yep. and they got treated for sepsis and they're not getting better because antibiotics really don't help uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, especially if there was not infection causing it. And early diagnosis, it's not that difficult to treat because you're not worried about the glucose. You're just worried about getting enough insulin in to treat the ketoacidosis. But you have to make the diagnosis. And having patients be aware that when they start to feel sick, they do need to get checked, I think is one of our obligations because of that side effect, even though it's rare. Yeah. And Bob, I would make the case that when someone comes in with an anion gap acidosis, we ought to be trying to identify the anion anyway, because if it's lactate, it may be sepsis. If it's ketones, it's DKA. Right. And and who knows, maybe they've ingested aspirin or, or ethylene glycol right. or something. So, you know, I think it goes back to another sort of principle of medicine, which is, uh, you know, there an anion gap is not normal. And whatever the accumulated anion is needs specific attention, and it it will the the treatment will vary widely depending on what that accumulated anion is. It's not that the anion is the disease; it's basically a harbinger of what's going on with that patient. Right, and the other tragic complication, which the Annals article uh, earlier this year mentions, is Fournier's gangrene how do we think about this and how do we warn patients and how do we warn doctors? And I guess if, if I could start with the bigger picture on infections and then Great. hone in corneas. So the most common uh, infection has been genital mycotic infections in men and women. And again, with clinical experience, what I would tell you is I think attention to hygiene can really mitigate that risk. Obviously, somebody, though, who's had problems with recurrent yeast infections is probably not a good candidate for SGLT2 inhibition. Mm -hmm. But I think with regard to that complication, it's more about telling people that this can happen and attention to hygiene and then describing symptoms so that if they do develop an infection, we have a chance to intervene early before it's too big of a problem. I think most clinicians at this point will stop the drugs for a a mycotic infection. The good news is that we do have other options uh, that not only treat hyperglycemia 
in moderate to severe CKD, but also are kidney protective, so the GLP-1 receptor agonist class. So for me, uh, it, and I have had the experience of treating several people with genital mycotic infections, so my approach to this was basically to then switch them to a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which doesn't have that side effect. Some new data have come out from Declare Timmy about Fournier's uh, gangrene, and some more data have come out about uh, what you stressed, which was hygiene. And maybe you could help the listeners by telling them a little bit about those two pieces of information that are very relevant when you're counseling people who you put on SGLT2s. Sure, I would be happy to do that. So in Declare Timmy 58, this was another cardiovascular outcome trial, this time using the SGLT2 inhibitor dapagliflozin. The main results were actually published uh, earlier this year, but they presented data on development of chronic kidney disease and more data on uh, side effects. What they were able to show very clearly is that uh, dapagliflozin prevented onset of diabetic kidney disease measured by, particularly by albuminuria progression. But they also uh, were vigilant about collecting adverse events and side effect data in the trial. They did not detect higher rates of either genital mycotic infections or Fournier's gangrene. Now, Fournier's gangrene has come to light because of some post-approval marketing reports of uh, Fournier's gangrene in patients treated with SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, one of the things that the investigators uh, emphasized uh, at the presentation of the kidney data at the ADA meeting was that they were very attentive to the overall uh, diabetes care in these patients, uh, including uh, hygienic attention. Now, because that wasn't specifically studied, we can't ascribe cause and effect. But basically, if the care was delivered according to the Declare Timmy 58 protocol, they did not have higher rates of infection. So we can look to that protocol as a guide to how to deliver care safely in the clinic. And then separately, in a smaller study from the UK, the issue of uh, hygiene uh, was addressed by um, actually having patients cleanse themselves daily after every void and before going to bed. And similarly, uh, in that study, the group who received the hygiene advice had a very low rate of uh, fungal infections compared to those who didn't. So while we don't have a lot of evidence, we do have emerging evidence that we can um, treat patients safely with SGLT2 inhibitors in a clinical setting. And that with attention to good diabetes care, including hygiene, we can probably really minimize the risks. The other thing, too, that I would speak to as, a, as someone who sees patients every week is, um, again, education and engagement of the patients to tell them that if they have symptoms related to infection, to get in touch with you right away so that you can deal with it before it becomes a bigger problem, really emphasize the prevention. One side effect that I haven't seen written about but I thought I just had a patient with is uh, volume contraction due to mm. the obligatory osmotic diuresis. Is that yeah. something you've seen? Yes, and mainly in people who are already treated with diuretics and, again, during sick days when people tend to become volume depleted for various reasons. Um, this was interesting at the ADA scientific sessions that just occurred 
uh, a week to 10 days ago, there was a lot of discussion about how to manage diuretics when starting an SGLT2 inhibitor because of the the concern about avoiding volume depletion. And it was interesting, again, nobody's done the study, so it was more expert opinion, including not only speakers and panelists, but audience members who got up and were um, involved in the discussion. Some clinicians do reduce dose of diuretics, but not all do. And that's where clinical judgment comes in again. Um, I think, you know, if there's a patient who you think may be prone to volume depletion, it could be prudent to reduce the diuretic dose. I have to say, though, that in my clinical practice, which includes a lot of people with advanced DKD, which also means concurrent heart failure, Uh, To me, the drugs are an adjunct to getting adequate diuresis. And in some patients in whom we've used conventional diuretics, including loops and thiazides in combination, the addition of an SGLT2 works at yet another nephron segment. So since you get proximal tubular sodium blockade as well as glucose blockade, with the loop, you get medullary thick ascending limb with the thiazide, you get distal convoluted tubule, and we've called that sequential nephron blockade. And honestly, there are people in whom using the loop and the thiazides together have not given adequate diuresis, either in control of blood pressure volume. And so the SGLT2s have been my friend uh, for those kinds of patients. But there are other patients who may be more likely to become volume depleted. And I think that's where your clinical judgment and again, advice to the patient is important. And again, during sick days, that's yet another reason to temporarily discontinue medications so that that when they're not eating or drinking or if they have fluid losses through vomiting or diarrhea, that they don't become volume depleted. Right. And uh, one of the things that we teach all the time is that when you're treating heart failure, diuretics should be used as needed for the volume and the weight uh, and try to get to... uh, uh, and some ideal or uh, uvolemia or <laughs> as close to uvolemia as you can, but not give extra diuretics because volume contraction is not good. Well, these, right. sound, these sound like miracle drugs, and I know there's a lot of enthusiasm, but they're pretty expensive, aren't they? Yes, um, they are. And, and I think that currently is a barrier to treatment. Also, because the current FDA label is for treatment of hyperglycemia, What I've found is when I've tried to prescribe them, there's often a requirement that the patients fail a series of other antihyperglycemics for insurance coverage. But really, we're now using these drugs above and beyond, perhaps even independent of glycemic control. So those rules don't really apply. We should be using them for organ protection, not just for glycemic control. And in fact, as GFR goes down, they don't their glycemic efficacy is diminished. Like in Credence, I think they only got a 0.6 A1C reduction. Um, So I'm hoping that as the label indications evolve, that hopefully the insurance coverage will come around. Of course, it it varies on where you practice and what kind of healthcare system you're in. But where where I work in the Northwest U.S. in a large integrated health system, the out-of-pocket cost for an SGLT2 inhibitor is in the range of 1000 to 1500 a month. So, you know, if we really want to have the impact of these agents, that has to change or it will be a barrier for most patients. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the good, uh, which is all the positive things SGLT2s do, the bad, and that's the side effects we have to worry about, and the ugly, and the ugly is the price. Um, mm-hmm. uh, with apologies to Sergio Leone and Clint Eastwood. 
and I think you really answered the other question. When you can't use an SGLT2, um, and you and I talked about this previously, there are other things that are renal protective at least, and the GLPs seem to have some good data. Are there other things on the horizon that we should know about before we finish? Well, one of the things about the GLP-1 receptor agonists that I think is worth calling out is they maintain glycemic efficacy at low GFR. So, for example, the SGLT2 label for IMPA glyphosate is down to 45. Uh, for DAPA, I think it's only down to 60. The good news is the GLP-1 class in general is labeled down to a GFR of 30 and dulaglutide is labeled down to 15. Mm-hmm. So, they can be used safely and they're effective for glycemic control even when GFR is low. And they're a great alternative to insulin because they don't cause hypoglycemia. And when GFR is low, insulin has been our main go-to drug because it's one of the few that we've been able to use safely and effectively. Although the big risk there is hypoglycemia. So the GLP-1s are also a good option when you're trying to achieve glycemic control without hypoglycemia in somebody with a low GFR. Um, So they're an alternative to SGLT2s, but where glycemic control is of paramount concern, they're more effective in patients with kidney disease. We don't, the trial data for the GLP-1 receptor agonists on the cardiovascular outcomes trials, and then AWARD-7 was conducted in a group of patients with stage three and four CKD, so moderate to severe CKD, GFR down to 15, and we also showed that GFR decline and in-stage renal disease were prevented by dulaglutide. So don't forget about that class of agents too. And on the cardiovascular side, those agents have more of an anti-atherosclerotic effect than a neutral effect on heart failure. So again, we don't break our patients into pieces. So when I'm thinking about glucose lowering in a patient with type 2 diabetes and kidney disease, I'm also looking at their cardiovascular risk profile because most of them do have cardiovascular disease. Somebody who I think is at higher risk of an atherosclerotic event, I'm more prone to a GLP-1 heart failure event, I'm more prone to an SGLT-2. So there's a lot of clinical decision-making that comes into looking at the total picture. Well, this is great. Let's just take about one more minute. Uh, You're speaking to a lot of practicing internists and hospitalists. And what are the big things you want them to have taken away from this great conversation? Well, I think it's really an exciting uh, time in this field. Type 2 diabetes, despite our best efforts at prevention, is going to be with us for a long time, which means more people with complications. And I think having the SGLT2 inhibitors is really tremendous because we can use these as oral agents for glycemic control. But probably more important really in the long run is the fact that they've been shown to reduce major cardiovascular complications, particularly heart failure and progression of kidney disease. And these have been very large unmet needs in the population. So I think the reason you're seeing so much excitement is it's been a long time. 2001 was the last time we had a new drug approved for diabetic kidney disease, which was the angiotensin receptor blockade class. And during the last 18 years, we've seen nothing but an escalation in prevalence of diabetic kidney disease. So I think we have hope that we finally have treatment that's preventive because our goal should really be to keep people healthy and keep them alive. And these drugs seem to have benefits uh, and for both of those really important um, aspirations. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I I think you've done a great job of 
telling us what all the benefits and, and red flags are for uh, this very important class of drugs. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The good of SGLT2 inhibitors are very clear. It decreases heart failure and decreases hospital admissions for heart failure. It slows the progression of chronic kidney disease and decreases death in many patients with type 2 diabetes. There's much enthusiasm, as you can tell from Dr. Tuttle's great review of the positive effects of SGLT2s. The articles that we focused on helped explain the bad about the SGLT2s or the adverse effects. Uh, We had a great discussion of normal glycemic DKA. We've seen this, and it's an important diagnosis to make. Not that difficult to treat as long as you recognize the diagnosis immediately. The reports of Fournier's gangrene are very disturbing. Dr. Tuttle made a very important point about uh, hygiene as a risk factor for mycotic infections, urinary tract infections, and likely for Fournier's. Finally, uh, the effect on volume status with both uh, naturesis and an osmotic diuresis uh, can be helpful in some patients with heart failure, but can lead to volume contraction. And we focused on the ugly, and that's the price of these drugs in 2019. We're going to see more of the SGLT2s, and it's our hope that this discussion will make the listeners more intelligent about their use and the precautions that we must take into consideration when we prescribe them or follow a patient for whom someone else has prescribed an SGLT2. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.